0: Caterpillars with Knives.
1: Caterpillars with Knives.
0: Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list.
2: Close your eyes and imagine it with me a dried line of salty sweat that has dripped down your neck from behind your ear the creaky sound of a rocking chair on a porch as an old woman watches you walk by a post office so covered in kudzu vines that you can't tell if it's been closed for a month or years southern gothic as a genre is a love letter to the southern united states it holds stories that from anywhere between the Blue Ridges in West Virginia and Texas, where everything is bigger. Now, when I say love letter, I don't mean that the genre seeks to romanticize this area, rather it seeks to dissect it. And in particular, Southern Gothic literature was born out of a desire to pick apart the favorite myths of antebellum Southerners who had an idealistic vision of what the South looked like in a God-centered post-Civil War America. Of course, the genre has developed since then, and continue to sort of critique and explore the motifs that we associate with the South, with the sort of dark parts of American history. So Flannery O'Connor, a bit of a controversial figure, but really one of the founding fathers of this genre, wrote this quote, and bear with me because I think it has kind of defined how I see the genre. Whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it is because we are still able to recognize one. To be able to recognize a freak, you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South, the general conception of man is still in the main theological. That is a large statement and it is dangerous to make it for almost anything you can say about Southern belief can be denied in the next breath with equal propriety. But approaching the subject from the standpoint of the writer, I think it is safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ haunted. The southerner who isn't convinced of it is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. So Southern Gothic stories are about decay of buildings, of small towns, of people, of societal values. Um, And this decay leaves sort of like a haunting aftertaste in your mouth. It's got a lot of motifs and tropes as any genre would. And I think it's something that deserves a lot of criticism as well as praise. And in particular, we have a lot of interesting subgenres that are starting to come out of Southern Gothic, in particular, Black Southern Gothic is a subgenre that really interrogates the way that a lot of Black characters and histories tend to be overgeneralized and overlooked. And I think that's probably produced some of the best stories to come from this literary tradition and a lot of them coming out years after. Its initial conception with people like Flannery O'Connor or William Faulkner is another big one that people will point to. I've also seen Edgar Allan Poe described as Southern Gothic, which is interesting because I wouldn't have thought of that, but I guess it's true. So this week, before we get started with the books, I wanted to kick it off with our question and then we can get into some of the lovely titles, or maybe not so lovely titles, that my reading friends have picked out for us. So this is my question to all of you. If you could pick one detail from the town that you grew up in or a town you moved to, doesn't have to be the one you grew up in, and turn it into a horror or gothic or dark themed story, what would it be?
1: I remember when I live in Hong Kong, there's two ways to get home. I live on a hill. One way is through this creepy elevator that goes through a restaurant and then a parking lot. And then it will be halfway up the hill and then I have to go back up the hill. The other way is to go through this equally creepy stairs that go all the way up to the hill that ends you in a playground and then sort of near the top. And that is like a, a 200 steps, 300 steps kind of stairs that I can hike up every day. And I think that staircase would be like the best place for whatever's going to happen because I always imagine that because the way you can't really see up the top when you're like starting on the stairs, that one day, whatever is up there is going to be completely different. It will lead me to some other random place. And also throughout that, that trip, anything could happen. Because you're just on a staircase all by yourself, so anything could happen. Just weird things could pop up. So I think that is like the best place. And I think by the time I get up there, I I can just imagine something weird is waiting for me up at the top. So
0: lovely, lovely. Um, I don't really know where to start with mine because there were several haunted areas. <laughs> In my hometown, including behind our regular elementary school was like a dilapidated old schoolhouse with like the windows boarded up and it was made out of wood and it just sat there where you could imagine all manner of horrible things happening. But I think I'm going to choose an event that periodically happens in my hometown about every 10 years to kind of depending on the cycle is that there is an invasion of tent caterpillars. And not just any regular caterpillars. They're about like that long. They're kind of blue and spotted. And when I say an invasion, I mean that they cover the ground. The road is slick with them. As you walk along on the ground, you hear the of their skeletons with every single step that you take. Your clothing is just like covered in the goo of their entrails. And I remember one extremely particularly bad year is that when we drove our car into our driveway, we lived in the middle of the forest. And of course, all the trees are bare. So it's the middle of summer and there is not a leaf to be found. And I remember turning the corner, like slightly skidding on the skeleton of the caterpillars as you kind of fishtailed your way to the driveway and coming to see our house that was twitching it was twitching with the movement of thousands of caterpillars the entire house was undulating with their movement so it's not an imagination (laughs) that this is just like
1: the horror movie that has already happened
0: yeah, I'm not phased by much because I've already lived through a horror movie. It's fine.
3: So mine is not remotely nuanced. I grew up in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and you may know it by its reputation for violence. Uh, it's actually, it's a beautiful, like wonderful, wonderful place that has a lot going for it, but it does have a violence problem, uh, and in particular, a knife problem people will get jumped and then there's the fear of getting jumped so you carry a knife and then there's just more knives and then there's just more violence so it would like yeah like be, it's just a very straightforward like fear of people and that like going into your own head of like if i don't have a knife that i'm gonna get knifed and then there's just more and more knives and like i don't know it would be called like knife town or something and just like be really heavy heavy-handed
4: so my hometown is burnaby and in Burnaby, it has this sort of strange ju- juxtaposition between suburban sort of houses and then really small scale sort of like dilapidated farmland, like right next to it. So anyone who's ever taking like the one hundred bus from like Twenty Second Street Skytrain, you'll go through like, this weird, almost rural area with these farms and houses from like 50, 60 years ago that don't look like they've been taken care of very well, surrounded by giant trees and vegetation and whatnot. It's like If you go down like a small off-road, it looks like you could like just disappear and like fall off a cliff and no one would ever know that you disappeared through that specific crevice of a street. And it's always struck me as this weird sort of like area that never quite got developed later on. Whereas like other parts of Burnaby are like much more modern or like full-on houses and things like that. Whereas this area just has sort of stayed the way it has been for many years. And just seeing that just kind of reminds me of like the kind of dilapidated um sort of scenery you see in a lot of southern gothic yeah (laughs) those
2: are all really cool most people might know the fact that i come from a place which has an area outside of town known as chemical valley and so i think mine would be uh like in a very blade runner sense like it's a if you see chemical valley it looks like a a sort of interesting sci-fi cityscape but um i think the big thing with mine is that it would have to be sort of an environmental message at its core. We have created monsters because we've been mistreating things. And it would be based on a real event that I believe might have been fixed before I was born, because I think it might have happened in the 80s, could have been in the 90s. And the chemical runoff from the plants that was going into the river created a gelatinous blob at the bottom of our river. And so they had to undertake this, this massive project to sort of fix up and get rid of that blob. And so I think I would have, it would have to be about the blob in the river. The other alternate idea is also in the river, there are a lot of cars because we were a spot uh, where there were a lot of rum runners during the prohibition period. And Al Capone has a house in Sarnia. So I feel like there's something to be done for like a a little bit of a prohibition smuggling blob combination. And I think that would that would be the story that would be uh, told in general. There is a tiny, tiny subgenre for Southern Ontario Gothic. It's been criticized for being just too realistic and actually just what happens in Southern Ontario as opposed to something that's maybe like stretching the truth a little bit. So I have seen that before. Thank you for all of these horrifying tales of (laughs) growing up in various places, the caterpillars in particular, and I hate that. Although the knives are maybe more of a practical fear.
1: Combine the two. We need to combine the two and make our own story.
2: Caterpillars with knives. Caterpillars with knives. Caterpillars lining the staircase. Yeah, the stairs that you were going up. The caterpillars are concealing a knife in their big mass and then you just sort of see it slowly start to poke out and you see the kind
3: of glint i'm imagining the caterpillar from alice in wonderland like the hookah caterpillar but it's got a knife instead
2: all right i love this okay this is the novel that we're gonna come up with we got it we got it yeah awesome so (laughs) green what do you have for us this week
0: Well, first of all, Gabriel, I would like to thank you for uh, giving us definition of Southern Gothic because I wasn't totally sure, but I definitely went to a book list that said it was Southern Gothic and picked something that I thought I might enjoy um, only because Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil was checked out by someone. And so congratulations to them on exquisite taste. That's what I would have chosen because of crime. So instead I chose a mystery book. So when you come to the Bellevue plantation, you feel at peace. You might come to enjoy a wedding or a society function or some kind of soiree to celebrate someone giving an obscene amount of money to someone else. You come to this plantation to enjoy the glory years of the Old South. At least that is what the Clancy family would like you to believe. And by extension, Karen Gray, who manages the estate would also like you to feel that because her job depends on it. Back to her old hometown after four years of trying to make it as a lawyer in New Orleans, Karen has returned to Bellevue to be the general manager after having grown up on the grounds of this plantation, running around free through all of the exhibits and the extensive grounds. In a sense, she has come home. Her mother, Helen, was the cook there for many, many years and who was very, very loyal to the Clancy family who has owned this plantation for generations. Helen cooked for the patriarch, James Clancy, and even after he had retired and been sent to a home, every week drove an hour to bring him his favorite home cooking. She was so loyal that Karen almost began to suspect as a child that he might actually be her father. She grew up around the Clancy brothers, Raymond and Bobby, golden boys, heirs to fortune and farmland. But her roots to this land go deep, maybe even deeper than the Clancy's. Her grandparents and her great-great-grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents worked the sugarcane fields as enslaved people to the plantation and as freed people afterwards. And as much as Karen tried to escape this land escape this place go to new orleans find a nice guy named eric who she thought maybe she was going to marry and start a family with her young daughter morgan she just can't stay away this place has a hold on karen and karen knows all the secrets of this land or so she thinks she knows that what they show the tourists is not the whole story of this place, that in the old schoolhouse, they may put on a play three times a day for school children and various tourists with parts like slave number three or mammy. But Karen can feel the chill and the horror when she goes to inspect the slave quarters where six dilapidated sheds stand as a testament to the people who worked in the house and the land. And Karen knows that despite the layer of calm and tranquility of their small town in Louisiana, that there are tensions that run deep between the haves and the have nots between the whites and the black community, and between the townspeople who have been there for generations and the new immigrants that have been brought in to work the industrial farming that happens behind the plantation, where the ancestors of those townsfolk farmed for generations and generations, only to be kicked out by the new owners of the land. And so when a body is found in a shallow grave on the side of the plantation, Karen is not particularly surprised. She knows that it's only a matter of time before these secrets of the town come to surface. She knows that the body of the young girl, probably one of the temporary workers on the farm, is going to cause things to come to the surface. But what she doesn't expect is that it will hit so close to home. The police know and Karen knows that one of her co-workers, one of the workers on the plantation, is tied to this crime. And she even begins to suspect that her young daughter, Morgan, who has hidden a blouse covered in blood in their house, in their room that they live in on the plantation, might be involved. And as the police start to chase down the wrong people based on the wrong idea, Karen decides to dig deep into the mysteries of Belle v, the mystery of the dead girl and the longer mystery of the disappeared former slave that has haunted Belle v for years. And she discovers that the sins of the past might be haunting the present. This is one of the early thrillers by Attica Locke, who is probably most famous for Bluebird, Bluebird. And this is a grab-you-by-your-eyeballs, won't-let-you-go thriller called The Cutting Season. The writing in this is so good and so sharp. In kind of what you were talking about, Gabriel, that some of that, the most exciting writing in Southern Gothic is coming from these Black writers who are challenging that narrative of what the South is. She shines such an incisive, critical eye at the idea that a plantation, an area where enslaved people were worked to death, were owned by people, is sort of a Disneyland for tourists that is somewhere that you would bring to have a good time or have a wedding. But she also, because she's such a good writer, makes you realize that these places are also employing so many people and are so integral to the economy of those particular areas that it's it's hard to unpack for these communities. If you are looking for a Southern Gothic thriller mystery by, I would argue, one of the smartest writers out there in the genre, Attica Locke, again wrote Bluebird. Bluebird um, is a screenplay writer who wrote for Empire. is just an amazing, amazing talent. I would recommend that you pick up the Cutting Season.
2: All right, I am going to add that to a list because that sounds amazing, and I think you're you're very right. In I think it. Hits on almost all of the things that I really love about the Southern Gothic genre and the, I think, like the criticisms, but also the understanding that comes with the South and the way that we look at its legacy. So thank you. That's really, that's really cool. And I'm not always a, I'm not always a thriller person, but I think for Southern Gothic, I will do it. (laughs) I will go for it. All right. And Fiona, what do you have for us today?
3: Yeah, so I have a brutal and extremely well-crafted book that totally took me by surprise. So this is Sing Unburied Sing by Jessmyn Ward. Now this book opens with uh, the disembodiment of a goat. which was quite shocking and honestly i'm proud of myself for for finishing the book when it started out that way the rest of the book is is similarly brutal in its realistic depiction of life for these characters and just the brutality of it so our main character is joseph or jojo Uh, he is a young man only about 14 who has had to take on Much too much, in my opinion, for a 14-year-old. His mother, who he refers to only as Leone, is largely absent and is a drug addict. His relationship with her is perhaps worse than his relationship with his incarcerated father, because Leone is one of those figures who shows up when it suits her. She can never be relied upon, but she's still pulling those emotional strings for Jojo. Jojo has a younger sister, Kayla, who is the world to him and Jojo is the world to her. She's uh, a toddler and I I always like when a toddler is written well uh, and Kayla is written very well and their relationship is, is extremely endearing but also very sad because we see how much Joseph is responsible at his young 14 years. There is also Pop, who is the apple of Joseph's eye. He is an upright man, hardworking, with strong values, and Joseph loves that he has always been told that he is like Pop. And then there's Mam, who is dying of cancer. In a lot of ways, she has been the one who has held their family together, and especially for Pop, who you know is the great love of his life it's extremely difficult to see her as she fades away this is actually a dual perspective book which was quite interesting i i wasn't sure i was going to be into it because we also get leone's perspective and it brought me back to our parenting episode because she's a horrible parent and she's a very very selfish character and like she definitely isn't meant to be sympathetic but i found that through her pov i actually was able to come to like her despite her being really just yeah a deeply deeply flawed and selfish character so the only thing that leone cares about other than getting high is her boyfriend and the father of jojo and kayla michael who is incarcerated she loves him so dearly it's actually quite lovely (laughs) Um, just how intensely she loves him, but of course it, it makes her blind to everything else. The only other thing Leone has ever cared about in life is her brother, Given. Given was brutally murdered in what was called a hunting accident when he went hunting with some white boys from his football team. It actually was Michael, who is Leonie's boyfriend's, cousin who uh, murdered Gibbon so there is quite a complicated history between the families and Michael's parents are honestly complete trash and um, so they haven't really met their grandchildren and are actively hostile towards Leone. It takes place over only a few days and a lot of those few days are a horrible horrible road trip to go pick Michael up from the penitentiary. Just everything goes wrong. They're stopped by the police. They, they pick up drugs along the way. It's very upsetting to see these children in this situation, uh, but they are, are resilient. And somehow the characters just have this attitude that like this is normal. And, uh, and so you as the reader are just understand so implicitly how brutal this life is. Okay, uh, the last piece of the story is Richie. Richie was a very young boy who was put in prison for stealing because he had multiple siblings who needed to eat. And so he ended up in prison when Pop was there. We presume that Pop's offense was equally justified. You know, we don't don't assume that he was there for like an actual crime. And it was Pop who, who tried to take care of Richie, who at his young and tender age was just so not fit to be in the prison and he was always looking over his his shoulder trying to protect Richie so what kind of took me by surprise is that this is actually a story about ghosts Um, all of the family members have some different magical abilities Jojo can hear animals speak which i actually loved so much because they don't like they're not like hey Jojo how are you doing they're like eat give food I eat you, like very, like, I can imagine animals talking like that. Uh, So it wasn't like important for the the story, but I really appreciated the interpretation of what animals would say if they, if you could hear them. And Leone and Jojo also have the ability to see ghosts. And we also find out what Kayla can do throughout the story. So I really loved how it, it was not at all heavy handed. I don't really like, my magic to be detailed. I like it to kind of sit there under the surface. And it really like, it doesn't become important to tell the last quarter of the story. And this book is actually really a sort of a meditation on people who have died brutally, essentially. And, and what, what does that mean? How do we go forward from that when black bodies are violated and, and murdered in such brutal, horrible, horrible ways? And what does it mean? What does it mean to die when life itself is so difficult and brutal? So, again, took me by surprise because I just, I didn't expect that much from this book. And, you know, not usually my kind of thing, but Sing Unburied Sing, absolutely amazingly crafted and definitely would recommend if you are planning to read more Southern Gothic.
2: I also was not expecting the ghosts after that description. I'm excited to hear that there were some animals speaking. And also, it does sound like one of those ones that I've I've definitely heard the name Sing on Barry's Sing before. And I think I can understand why after hearing the description of some of the different themes and also the plot arc that it goes on. Yeah. So another, another really great, really interesting Southern Gothic novel. I think I'm actually going to go next and talk about a book that actually was the first Southern Gothic novel I ever read. And I'm someone who loves rereading books. I love rewatching movies. I love replaying video games. I like revisiting the media that spoke to me or made an impression at different points in my life, because I feel that even if I don't pick up something new from the story, I will sometimes pick up something new about myself once I've had some of that distance. So I decided that I wanted to go back a little bit and actually revisit this one again, also partially because I was going to read Summer Suns and it was out. I did not plan ahead far enough in advance. If you want to read something, folks, Make sure you put your holds on it well before it happens. So I figured let's go back to the classics. So this is an older book, but it was one that was made into a very good Netflix movie in 2020. So if anybody doesn't want to read it, you can also watch it. (laughs) And so I first read this back in high school. It's been quite a while. And I wanted to revisit it both just because I sort of have a different brain now and also because I had seen the Netflix movie and I liked both, but I remembered it being far more brutal than the movie, maybe because of the fact that there are certain things that you can do in a book that you really just can't do in a movie if you want it to be palatable to a bigger audience. And so that's one of the nice things about books is that you can kind of go ham. You can go all the way out on everything. And Tom Holland is the main character of the movie. So if that sells it for you, there you go. The book that I chose is The Devil All the Time. And it's by Donald Ray Pollock. It came out in 2011. Pollock has written a few other Southern Gothic works, including something called The Heavenly Table in 2016 and Knock em Stiff in 2008 which uh, is actually the name of the tiny rural Ohio town that he grew up in. The concept of growing up in a town called Stiff. great. Already a great story in and of itself. So I will preface this by saying this is a dark novel. Not that the others aren't, but it's very much something that wants to revel, I think, in the darkness. There is definitely a place for it. It's got explicit violence and gore. There are implications of incest implications of sexual abuse all manner of really horrible things it's not a light read it's not even really a happy read which isn't something that i always go for southern gothic is is maybe one of the exceptions to that because i like my my post apocalyptic fiction to be very hopeful i don't necessarily need that with the southern with the southern gothic so i'm surprised that this is a book that I would recommend knowing my <laughs> knowing my own history and the things that I enjoy. But again, the movie might be more palatable for folks as it tones down like a lot of the really intense nastiness that comes from the story. Also takes out any implications of incest. <laughs> so <laughs> if that's like the thing that you that will make or break a story for you, maybe maybe that's the way way to go. But the story is set in southern Ohio and West Virginia just after World War II, and sort of stretches into the 1960s. We have a few plot lines that seem only to be connected by geography at first, but by the end, they all pool together like the blood on the grooves of a prayer log. I'm not gonna talk about the events of the story. Instead, I'm gonna talk about the characters we meet. Brother Roy and Brother Theodore are traveling preachers. While they aren't faith healers, Roy is looking to prove the strength of his connection to God. As he pours buckets of spiders over his head, he trusts that God will protect him. As this sureness wanes, he has to cast his gaze around him to find a new worthy sacrifice. Carl and Sandy Henderson were in love once. Now they're together because Sandy has nowhere else to go and Carl would find find it a very hard time to encounter another woman who enjoys the same activities that he does. They love picnics and photography and long road trips. Hitchhikers are some of the most interesting people to pick up because you can learn so much about a man who's grateful to you. Carl figures it's not really infidelity if you're still with them taking pictures. And Sandy's pretty good at hiding the bodies afterwards too. Sheriff Bodecker, Sandy's brother, is too preoccupied with the upcoming election to really notice that his sister's acting strange. Especially when a ghost from the past rolls into town. Which brings us to my favorite of the plot lines and the one that kind of follows our main protagonist. Willard is a World War II veteran, still haunted by the horrifying things he saw in the Pacific theater. He's come home. He's ready to forget everything that happened. He meets Charlotte, a cute waitress. They fall in love and they have a son named Arvin. He forgets for a while. When his wife falls deathly ill, this blood-soaked man looks to God to save her. Willard and Arvin pray every day at a makeshift altar in the woods. And if they pray hard enough, Arvin's mother might be saved. Their devotion doesn't save her, and it leads Willard down a dark path. Arvin has his own path to follow, less dark, but no less steeped in blood. All of the plot threads come together in something that's just as grotesque and dark as you would expect from a Southern Gothic story. Arvin, Willard's son, is kind of the protagonist. All of the plot lines do, well, while they all intersect at quite a few places, he's really what brings them all together. He's a little bit of idea, an idea as much as he is a character. He's kind of a force of nature, I would say. Arvin is quite the interesting fellow. His father raised him not to take anything from bullies, and there's a lot of people in knock stiff in the area who might be considered bullies we'll say so there you go the devil all the time by donald ray pollock i would recommend it well it makes a lot of comments on the south i think it it makes far more on the religious aspect as opposed to some of the more i think interesting stories we see nowadays that come from the the black southern gothic genre this one is very much one that Focuses a little more on religion, and I think that might have something to do with the fact that the author himself is also because he's from rural Ohio, it is a little bit farther north than most southern Gothic stories that you would kind of think of and didn't have the same type of like antebellum South experience. To finish my part off with a Gabriel video game recommendation, I am going to try and convince you to play one that I think is an indie masterpiece. It is called Kentucky Route Zero, and it is a Southern Gothic magic realism point and click. Steam has this to say about it should should be all you need, fellas. At twilight in Kentucky, as bird songs give way to the choir of frogs and insects, familiar roads become strange and it's easy to get lost. Those who are already lost may find their way to a secret highway winding through underground caves. The people who live and work along this highway are themselves a little strange at first, but soon seem familiar. The aging driver makes the last delivery for a doomed antique shop. The young woman who fixes obsolete TVs surrounded by ghosts, the child and his giant eagle companion, the robot musicians, the invisible power company lurking everywhere and the threadbare communities that struggle against its grip that one really good based on the idea of mammoth cave system if you've heard of it caves are terrifying the south is terrifying this game pretty fun so consider either picking up (laughs) the devil all the time or kentucky route zero and i am going to pass it on to virginia for our next book How
1: is it that I'm not talking about the darkest book in the podcast? This does not make any sense. Anyway, well, last week I had kind of recommended two companion novels by the same author. And this week I'm going to recommend half of a book because... Only half of this book fits the theme because it is a book that contains two stories and one of them is a cosmic horror, the other one a Southern Gothic. So I am recommending the book called A Lush and Seething Hell by John Horner Jacobs and in it is the story My Heart Struck Sorrow. The title, by the way, is super appropriate for both of the stories in this book. And like a good Southern Gothic, like Gabriel was just telling us, this book definitely forces you to look evil in the eye and deal with it. So this is the story of Cromwell. He is a librarian slash archivist that worked for the Library of Congress. And he has been informed that a collector has passed away. And upon his death, he has left them a substantial and super rare one-of-a-kind type of collection of vinyls. And these are all original recordings of songs of the deep self. They want Cromwell to go see what they're dealing with and to digitize it, to catalog it, to preserve it. They figure it's a good project for Cromwell, not just because he has a lot of musical knowledge, but also because this might help him take his mind off the recent deaths of his wife and his son. So together with his assistant, Harriet, they went to the mansion, of Harlan Parker. They were given the keys and they were given free reign. The realtor said, we're going to put the house up for sale soon, but everything here is yours. Take whatever you want. And so they were going around this giant house trying to figure out how they're going to find a way to transport everything back. And then they discover a lock room that is hidden out of sight. They figure since everything is theirs to take, they're going to break the padlock and see what's inside. And in it was a room full of recordings. They were all meticulously labeled and dated, presumably by Harlan Parker himself. And there's a journal. And you know, when you find a random journal in a secret room, it's going to have lots of secrets. It's going to probably contain some unbelievable story. And as Cromwell was standing inside the room, there's this unease. And he keeps thinking, you know, the room is locked, it's hidden, but it doesn't feel like it's a safe or a vault that you're trying to make sure that nobody finds it because of what's inside is valuable. It feels a bit more like it's locked because they want to make sure whatever is inside stays inside and that it can get out. And through the recordings and through the journal, Cromwell starts to piece together. The story of Harlan Parker and his unease is definitely justified. After he came back from the war, Harlan Parker spent years traveling the South to record musicians. And he was looking for blues and folk musicians that can play, that can sing. And he's bringing his sound around, his vinyl pressing machine. And that he would find these musicians wherever they are and try to make them perform for him so that he could record them. And specifically, he is interested in a folk song called Staggerly or Staggerly, depending on the version that he hears. For some reason, he's obsessed with different versions of it, especially the different lyrics and the different verses that this song has. He always asked his musicians to play this song first, and they all begin with pretty much the same story, a story of a murder. Stagley Shelton was drinking one day with Billy Lyons, and they got into a fight, and Billy took his hat, so Stagley decided to go home, grab his gun, came back, shot Billy dead, and he was then arrested, convicted of murder, and he was hung. That is sort of how most of the songs begin. As the song's refrain go, Steggerly is a bad man. But there are extra verses. And some of the musicians know the story after Stegley got hung, after death, what happened to him. And Harlan Parker, for whatever reason, is desperate to collect these stories, and he needs to hear the rest of the song. Why is Harlan Parker so obsessed with this song? And what drove him to travel all over the South to remote areas to try to find these musicians? And as Cromwell reads on and listens to the recording, he too became obsessed. And that the obsession of Parker is transferred over to Cromwell. And he too is looking for something. What are these two men looking for? The author John Horner Jacobs has been called a quiet master by his colleagues. And you can see why he gets so much respect from all his fellow horror writers. And they all think how he's massively underrated just from reading this story and the other one that is in this collection. It was such a page turner that like, I actually had a plan to read another book until about yesterday when I was like, I don't actually want to talk about this book. So I had to quickly find something to read. And this one, the 200 pages just flew by. It was so super engaging. First of all, there's this writing. And I think it really embodies the genre of Southern Gothic. The way he writes, there's such economy in it that he would drop in a sentence and sometimes even just the chapter title. And if you scan it and you missed it, Then you're going to miss something that will completely change your viewpoint or change your understanding of the story. And I feel like it's very much like when I read a Southern Gothic, because it's such heat and stickiness, just like what Gabriel started this episode with, that it blurs between that reality and the imagination and the reality and sort of the supernatural. And it always makes you wonder and you stop and you're like, wait, did I see that? Did I actually see that? Or did I just imagine it? And I feel like that's what his writing does. A sentence a word here and there, you'll just be like, wait, is he saying what I think he's saying? And you come to the realization, you're like, whoa, like, I think this is what happened. And it is such a treat to be able to read a story like that, that requires you to really pay attention. And then there's the characters. And as Fiona said, like these are not characters that you necessarily like, but somehow he managed to make, even if you don't like them, you still care to read about what happened to them and you feel sympathy for them. Because I think one of of the things in Southern Gothic for me that I really enjoy is all the floor characters. And many of them are just bad people it's not just the decay of the setting, but it's also just humanity in general. And it's just evil. And, and you have to like look at it. And when I was trying to, like again, same thing, try to read, okay, well, Southern Gothic, like, you know, what is the definition? And, and they talk about how there's such a blur line between the victim and the villain. And I feel like for both Cromwell and Harlan Parker, both of them have done some bad things. And it's really hard to try to navigate those two sides of a character. But John Paul Jacobs does such a good job so that you feel bad for them. And these two people, they're both filled with guilt and that, that guilt kind of leads to them, this, this obsession that they both have. And both of them are looking for redemption. They're looking for forgiveness, but it's not to be found. They're not going to find it. As they say, the only devils are men despite that this is a horror novel and there's definitely some supernatural stuff going on, but nothing can be worse than humans sometimes. Really, really enjoyed the characters in this and, and how they develop. And of course, as Gabriel pointed out, you know, Southern Gothic is a genre that really do look at and explore the social issues. And unlike Corinne's book, John Horner Jacobs is white. And so he's kind of coming to this from more than an ally's point of view. And you can see that he's very... Conscious of what he's writing and, and what he is saying in his book. And very much like White Tears by Hari Kundju, that I talk about in another episode, this is not just about the Black experience in the South after the Civil War, but it's also very much about the exploitation and also the cultural appropriation of music, of songs. This is a white man, Harlan Parker, who's trying to go and record songs of mostly Black musicians. And then we have the Library of Congress, again, Cromwell, a white man, trying to digitize those recordings. So there's a lot of that exploration of that topic in this book. As the book said, music is a ritual with the power to transform both the singer and the listener. And I feel very much like this story. Writing is the same. This story definitely will transform a reader and make us look evil in the eyes. so highly recommend it i will also recommend to read the other story which is a cosmic horror as the foreword by chuck Wendig pointed out if you love lovecraft story but you don't want the racist stuff you know read this instead so um, lush and seething hell by john honor jacobs
2: another one that i have to read uh this this episode is turning into a problem for me actually because my list of things to read is getting longer and longer because every single one of these has sounded amazing. And that one has, it's got it all. And it's one of those things that I think a lot of people might have encountered from the Southern Gothic genre without realizing that it's a Southern Gothic story. It reminds me, and it might have even mentioned, potentially, the story of Robert Johnson, which is a really, really well-known, or I would say that if you are interested in that sort of thing, it's a very well-known story about, A musician who went to a crossroads and sold his soul to the devil to be able to play guitar better. But of course, it's one of those ones that it's like, obviously not true. And it's based on a very good song by Robert Johnson called Crossroads. Yeah, the way that music and everything, I think, can kind of feed into it. And also a way to explore, like you said, cultural appropriation, but also the way that stories can be handed down is really, really, really cool. All right. And I'm going to give it over to Mark for our last book of the episode.
4: Okay. Thank you, Gabriel. So today I'm going to be talking about uh, Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by Tom Franklin. And this novel is very much like a split narrative novel where it takes place both in the present as well as the past. So the idea of the past influencing the present and the after effects of the past, influencing the present is very much an important aspect of this novel. And the novel itself takes place in a small town in rural Mississippi called Cabot. And this city has very much been in decline in the recent decades. It used to be a somewhat flourishing city, but businesses have been closing industries moving away. And now really the only remaining industry is the lumber industry as dominated by this one family called the Rutherford family that is sort of, ominously referred to throughout the novel as like ever present economic force, but isn't really seen all that much within the actual narrative. Just kind of interesting. In this story, one of our two main characters is the lone remaining patrolling police officer in the city, Silas Jones, who as the author also reminds us may also be the last remaining black man in town, as the city used to have a much more how should we say, interracial population, whereas now it's very much dwindled down to mostly just a holdout white population. And Silas primarily spends his day just doing the average sort of cop duties, giving out traffic tickets and checking parking meters and all that stuff. Maybe every now and again, he'll be called to remove a rattlesnake from a mailbox or something like that. But for the most part, his days are not all that busy. Suddenly, this will all change, however, once the large uptake in crime suddenly occurs, which begins with the sudden and unexpected disappearance of the oldest daughter of the rutherford family. After weeks of searching for this missing person, no one knows what has happened to her, and she's essentially presumed to have been murdered. Soon afterwards... There's another sudden murder, this time of the local marijuana dealer, Morton Morissette, or m M&M, and as he's colloquially referred to in the community. And then soon after, the local mechanic, Larry Ott, who we'll get back to in a minute, who's a very important character, is also found shot in his home and near death. Now, this Larry Ott character is a very infamous person in the community because several decades earlier, he had taken a young girl out on a date and she never returned home. Everyone always asked him what happened to her, but he always maintained that he never actually went on a date with this person, Cindy Walker. He was only a cover for her to go out with her boyfriend. And he's always maintained his innocence. However, the community has sort of remained very suspicious of him as he sort of become like a social outcast in the community because of this sort of suspicion that's hung over him for decades. And Silas is the person who sort of discovers Larry's body in his home and sort of takes them back to their time and their childhood because Silas and Larry were actually close friends for a short period of time in the 1970s when they were in middle school and then later on in high school. But however, being an interracial friendship, this was not a common thing in this part of the state. Segregation was still not officially enforced, but it was very much unofficially regulated through friendships and relationships and things like that. It was very much taboo for these two people to be close friends. And we sort of get to see this friendship of theirs interspersed flashbacks to the 1970s we get to see them as they were friends like out in the wilderness because larry's family owned very large portions of land that was pretty much untouched that they could just do whatever on they could go hunting they'd go fishing they'd spend all their days together as very close friends and alongside this we sort of get an idea of what their home life was like because larry sort of lived a more quote-unquote traditional American family with like a father, a mother, the sort of nuclear family. They got like a middle-class lifestyle. They own land. They own a home. Whereas Silas's family, he lives with a single mother. His father is in prison. They live in a very small cabin on land that's owned by Larry's family. So you sort of get to see like this sort of stark contrast in their living conditions and how that's related to their class and race. And I sort of found that to be the most interesting aspect of these sort of flashback scenes. You get to see how their lives are impacted by the sort of social conditions that they're growing up in. And in, back into the present, we sort of get to see how Silas sort of goes about trying to think about how their friendships of split apart at one point. I'm not going to say what happened, but essentially their friendship ends very abruptly because of a series of incidents. And then back into the present, Silas is trying to think about how what happened with Larry being blamed for the sort of kidnapping or murder or disappearance of this one girl and how this service sort of relates to the current string of crimes that's ongoing and how that he can, how can he try and find a way to solve these crimes and sort of reconnect with Larry over the years? Because it's something he's always been wanting to do. Larry has recently even reached out to him prior to this attempt on his life to try and reconnect with Silas. So then this is sort of like the background that's sort of going on as we sort of come into the present. I'm not going to spoil anything that happens with the actual mystery aspects of the novel, but it does sort of come to a satisfying conclusion as you sort of get to see how Silas pursues his own approach to these crimes based on his own sort of like intuitions and uh, experiences in the community. That's sort of like the gist of the narrative. I would say if you're interested in a more sort of narrative-driven, introspective narrative, you'd enjoy this because we sort of get Silas's own present and past narration of events, as well as Larry's. Larry's is primarily focused in the past when he was friends with Silas in the 70s, but we also into the present later on in the novel, we also get to see his own perspective in the present. So very much this sort of dual timeline, dual narration aspect of the story I found very interesting. And if you're sort of interested in that kind of story or narration style, then I think that you'd find this a very interesting read
2: sounds like another story where really you can you can explore that sometimes the dark stuff is within us as much as it is within society well thank you everybody for all of these great books that I'm immediately going to put on a to be read list whether or not I read them always a very big question with me whether or not (laughs) I see if there's a movie probably not the case with most of these so I might have to read them because I want, to, I want to see the stories. So if you're new to the genre, I hope that you will try out a Southern Gothic novel soon. If you're an old fan, hopefully we found something new for you to see, sink your teeth into. So thanks for listening and we will see you all next week.
0: Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional!